You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Samuel wonders if he should go to college, and if he should go to college, what should his major be? Susie, meanwhile, wants to know if she should go on a date with Paul or if she should say no in the hopes that somebody else will ask her on a date. Jose and Mary are wondering if they should have kids, and if so, when should they have kids, and how many kids, and how will that work in light of their work? Chris is wondering when to retire and what he'll do when he does retire. Felipe is trying to figure out if he should get a new car or just drive the one that his grandmother gave him for a few more years. Elise wants to know if she should go out on Friday night with some friends. They, after all, are going to have fun together. She doesn't want to be a night alone on another Friday night, seemingly alone, and yet should she stay home because she knows she's got an early morning meeting the next day. Hector's trying to decide between French fries or steamed broccoli for his side at dinner. Carlos is wondering if he should go to the movie with his friends or stay home and get some sleep because after all, he was late to work yesterday and that wasn't very helpful for his relationship with his boss. Life is filled with decisions big and small, consequential and seemingly insignificant. From what you decided to wear when you came to church today to where you're going to eat when you go to lunch afterwards with us today, each day is filled with tons of decisions. In fact, researchers at Cornell University have cited that we make 226 decisions each day on just food alone. I confess, I have not found that to be true with me. I mean, there is birthday cake Oreos or toffee crunch Oreos, double stuff. There's a few decisions there to be made. But 226 decisions? I don't know, maybe so. To eat or not to eat, what to eat, when to eat, with whom to eat, how much to eat. I don't know, maybe you could find that with food. The decisions that we make have different ramifications. A decision to drink water versus soda when you go out does not rank the same as what to name your child will have that name the rest of their life. So on behalf of your future children, please don't be weird. (laughs) When some people reflect on such a topic of decision-making, it can lead to great anxiety. In fact, psychologists have even come up with a term for this. It's called decidophobia. Decidophobia is defined as an irrational fear of making decisions. In the most extreme form of decidophobia, it can actually cause full-blown panic attacks. Others, though, come to such arena of thought with really quite the opposite approach. They're not having panic attacks. In fact, they're not really having any kind of thought about it. It's instinctive. It's impulsive. They've been told by their friends so often, they believe it to be true. You do you. And so they do. And the rest of us stand by and watch with a bag of popcorn as an entertaining life of theirs moves from one dramatic landscape of decision to another. But for those of us who are Christians, we have another question we're asking. It's a question that implies and affects all of the other questions we're asking. And the question is this, 
what does God want me to do? Not what do my parents want me to do, not what my friends want me to do, not what do I want to do, what does God want me to do? Well, friends, this is exactly why we want to talk to you about this this morning. The title of this morning's message is How to Make Decisions That Honors God. And the reason I say in my sentence, the reason why we want to talk to you about this is because this message today really comes from me on behalf of the elders of Grace Church. Last year, we spent some time together in an elders retreat. Many of you prayed for that, and we again thank you for that. One of the things that we discussed at our time together as elders is the reality as elders that we're called upon by a number of people in our church to help them think through their decisions to make. Or sometimes, more often, we learn after the fact of other decisions that other people have made, and we're trying to wonder how do we insert ourselves into that conversation to say, uh, it might be a little late, but can we have a conversation? That decision you made might not have been the best decision, if not maybe a sinful decision. But we also want to have this conversation with you as a congregation because our job, according to Ephesians 4, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body. And sometimes the greatest way you can be a good friend to one another is help them learn how to make good decisions. And by all means, do not tell them crazy things like, just follow your heart and you be you. Yet that's commonly what we hear in the world today, and we seemingly repeat it to one another, sprinkling a few Bible verses on it to somehow justify it. We want to equip you. The default for many in decision-making is that what feels right or most desirable in the moment is indeed must, must, what must be right. This often comes from a sense of entitlement. I've worked hard. I know much. I've done much. I know people. Or whatever it is that I am to be, I should be fully complete as a human, and that cannot be found outside of any discomfort I feel. So find the path of least resistance, i.e. the path of most personal fulfillment, and that must be what I should do because, after all, doesn't God love me? If God loves me, then his love for me will be shown in his approval of me, and his approval of me will be directing me just simply based on the primal desires and thoughts that I have. So therefore, if I desire this, God must desire this for me. Because after all, if God loves me, he would have given me a different desire. Because he has not, this must be his desire for me. And this is what often happens. Well, my goal is to help you know how to confidently make decisions today that honor the Lord. Or to use the subtitle of a really helpful book by Kevin DeYoung, titled Just Do Something. The subtitle reads, How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Impressions, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, Riding in the Sky, etc. Here's what I want to offer you. Let me kind of tell you where we're going. Let's go there, and let's hopefully then look back and see where we've been. First of all, we're going to look at a textual understanding of this discussion of how to make decisions. Look at some biblical text together. Secondly, we're going to consider some principles and general lessons that we can keep in mind for the days ahead. And then third, practical, give you some specific steps to take. Let's open our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. Now, this is by no means the ultimate ground zero verse in all biblical decision making, but it certainly can be a helpful one, and one that I hope to just take a few minutes to unpack for you to make some observations of what we can see from the text that can inform how we make decisions that honors God. As you're turning to Proverbs chapter 3, let me just kind of set the landscape for you. 
Proverbs is, as it says in its very title of the book, a collection of wise sayings, most of which are from Solomon, the son of King David, who himself was a king. Some of which are from others, but primary amounts of them, a majority of them are from Proverbs, or excuse me, from Solomon. And they come in different sections, particularly chapters 1 to 9. He's often talking to his son, Rehoboam, giving him counsel, if you will. Now, this is important for us to understand because Solomon is attributed as being the wisest man who has ever lived, minus Jesus himself, the Son of God. No one has come before him. No one has come after him that is as wise as Solomon, as the Old Testament says. So let's listen to what Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 3. Let's get a running start, starting in verse 1. He says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on a tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. And then here's our text, verse 5 and following. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. We'll stop there. The first thing we see in the text is that we should surrender to the Lord. The surrendering to the Lord really kind of comes in sort of different arenas and ways in life, but let me kind of put it, if I can, in kind of hopefully a memorable way. God's will for you, how to make a decision with the life God's given you, God's will for you is first and foremost demonstrated in you surrendering to the Lord for salvation. So let me be very clear, before we get into should you date Paul or should you marry Mary or should you have kids or should you go out for dinner, let's, say, let's ask a more fundamental question that has a bearing on your eternity. Have you come to accept the reality that God created you? He has authority over you, holy and just as he is, but you have rebelled against him and have gone your own way and have no way of escape from his righteous judgment against you except by turning to his son, Jesus Christ. That God sent his son as a substitute that all those who would repent of their sins and put their faith in him alone would be forgiven. Friends, to look to the Lord to trust in him for something daily by way of decision, but not eternal by way of life-giving direction, is to miss the very beginning premise of what it means to trust the Lord. For some of you, decision-making starts with the reality. Have you trusted the Lord with your soul? Not with your wallet, not with your day, not with your career, but with your life. We want to trust the Lord with our salvation, we also want to trust the Lord with our sanctification. Keeping your finger in Proverbs chapter 3, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is in the New Testament. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. And in 1 Thessalonians, he has been talking to them, this example, this model church. And just listen as I read to you what he talks about. He talks about the will of God. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Finally then, brothers... Verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, 
just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So, so there's the goal. The goal is to honor the Lord, walking accordingly that pleases God. But then he starts giving specific instructions. Verse 2, for you know instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Friends, for those who are professing to be followers of Christ, you not only want to trust the Lord with your salvation, you want to trust the Lord with your sanctification, which includes meaning conducting yourself in an honorable way. And an honorable way specifically talks about here about abstaining from sexual immorality. Friends, this is a problem for us in the world at large, particularly here in Miami. Our city is a very sexual city. Feeding the flesh of the eyes, the desires of the flesh. How we can abstain from sexual immorality, not just through our private pornography pursuits, but even by relational pursuits. How we identify with God and want to be holy and walking in a manner that pleases Him. Too often people are acting, asking questions about difficult decisions on a tactical level. Should I make this decision or should I make this decision? I'm saying, first and foremost, you should make the decision to be godly. This is why so commendably we in our community groups are studying for the spring semester, unless you're in my community group, which is the greatest community group under the planet, which is studying the gospel. But all the other ones are studying the pursuit of holiness. Because this is God's will for God's people. That those pursuits are seen, whether it be in our sexual restraint, recognizing God's desire and this gift of sex in the context of marriage and marriage alone, or in how we treat one another, not in the passion of the flesh, not being like others who do not know God. Bringing it back to our text in Proverbs chapter 3, we're not only trusting Him with our salvation, we're not only trusting Him with our sanctification, we're trusting Him in all situations. Trusting him in all situations. You're back in the book of Proverbs. Go to chapter 4, verse 7. Oh, how helpful this is. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7 says the following. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Why is this important? Because believe it or not, You nor I, individually, privately, are the embodiment of wisdom. In fact, a wise person, ironically, recognizes that they themselves are not wise. And they need to pursue wisdom to learn from others that God has given, and primarily from God's Word, to learn To love what the word of God says. No greater voice of counsel could be given than the God who created us. Get wisdom. Get insight. Listen what happens to those who do not. Go back to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The second part of verse 7 of chapter 1, fools despise wisdom and instruction. You want to be foolish? Go your own way. Do your own thing. Listen to no one. Cover your eyes, plug your ears, and follow your heart. 
into at best a confusing labyrinth of decisions that will often get you disoriented at worst, leaving a sea of bad decisions and the consequences that follow. God knows us. He knows us to communicate clearly to us. Thinking back in Proverbs chapter 3, we should not only surrender to the Lord, we should also, as the point is being made already, but just to kind of reiterate in the text, we should suspect ourselves. Suspect yourself. Look at what it says there in the second part of verse 5. Do not lean on your own understanding. Verse 7, be not wise in your own eyes. There is a humility that comes with seeking counsel. Friends, be known as somebody who initiates and pursues counsel, who does not look to yourself to be the source of all solutions. And then third in the text of Proverbs, live your life with God in mind. You surrender to the Lord, you suspect yourself, and you live your life with God in mind. That's exactly what's going on in verse 6. Look at what it says in verse 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Again, the second part of verse 7. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Friends, the challenge is not are there decisions to be made. The challenge is which decisions would honor the Lord and a reading of his word, an allegiance to his purposes, a planning and desiring to be a part of his community with his people protects us. That's the textual support, we should say, with so much more that could be given on how to make decisions that honors God. Let me give you some principles now. I want to cover four steps to biblical decision making. And I hope these to be helpful to you Some of this has been offered before, but let me put it now in condensed fashion. Number one, take personal responsibility. Take personal responsibility. Part of of growing up is the ability to think for yourself, right? I mean, you ask a young child who did something crazy, like smear peanut butter all over the couch, and you catch them in the act and you ask them the question, what were you thinking? Likely the answer is going to be, I don't know. Or if they're thinking, they're thinking, this looks fun. I like peanut butter. I like the couch. What can be better than peanut butter and the couch together? It's as, as, as insignificant and immature as that. A part of growing up is you begin to think about the decision and the ramifications of the decision after the decision. And you begin to think about how that decision influences and affects other people. You begin to move from immaturity to maturity. Decisions that need to be made. Problem is this doesn't happen all the time. Immaturity in our lives can be seen in being indecisive. I I can't make up my mind. Sometimes it'd be more honestly said, I don't want to make up my mind. Instant decisiveness can tempt all of us. It's only compounded when more people are affected by your decisions. The reality is that what tempts many husbands to slide into the profile of nice guys and recline their couches and defer all their decisions to their wives is because they don't want to be held responsible for the decision. They want to just defer in a spirit of being nice, but oftentimes it's a means of getting out of accountability and personal laziness. This isn't courtesy, it's cowardice. As Christians, we see that God holds us responsible for our decisions. Sadly, the decision we see recorded in Genesis chapter 3 is tragic. 
It's not just tragic for Adam and Eve who decided to not listen to God, but listen to the one who tempted them, the servant, to follow after the desires of their heart, who not only affected them and their relationship with God, but affected the rest of humanity that would follow. So often is the case today that our decisions affect others. When we make decisions, we should make decisions in light of what the Word of God has said. God expects us to take Him and His Word very seriously. So friends, a part of the idea here in biblical decision-making is that you understand the maturity of you taking responsibility and to do so with the Bible in your hand. With a prayer in your mouth, God, show me. God, lead me. The second step to biblical decision-making is to identify the complications. Identify the complications. When it comes to decision-making and wanting to be confident, we are honoring God with our decisions. There are some complications in the mix. Complication number one is family. I say that with all due respect to family. I'm a father. I have children. They make decisions. But the reality is sometimes we make decisions in light of what our family wants us to do. Maybe not what we should be doing. The path of least resistance, perhaps. Being overly dependent on our family in such a way that we're not actually maturing in our walk with the Lord and taking responsibility for the time of decisions. In South Florida, particularly because of our cultural influence, family can have a dominating influence in our lives. Our day, our time, our week, our weekend. Who we marry, where we go, what we do. And I mean to say that you have to understand the reality. That even when Scripture says to honor your mother and your father, it's not asking them to have a greater authority than the Word of God and God has in His conscience over you. And your conscience, rather, was Word over you. But some people, the complication with family is not being overly dependent upon them. Sometimes it's purposely in rebellion towards them. Sometimes there's this practice with youthfulness that simply says, because my parents have said it, I'm not inclined to do it. Some parents know exactly what I'm talking about. It almost becomes like reverse psychology. Whatever we do, don't tell them to make their bed so that they might in anger make their bed. Whatever we do, do not tell them to take their feet off the couch. On and on these go, from the silly to the serious. Sometimes the heart of man, when put in a place to be under authority, wants to reject it. Not just against God, not just against government, but sometimes even our employers and our parents and our landlords and our police officers. Because in these moments of authority over us, we find the problem is not the positions over us. It's in the practice of our hearts that often wants to fight against it. We should unidentify that. But we often have a more common complication with our decision-making. It's not our family. It's our feelings. What seems right to you must be right for you. We are sobered as we listen to what God says to the Israelites in Jeremiah 13, verse 10. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says from the Lord. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, 
who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. You know it's pretty bad when you get compared to a loincloth that's good for nothing. You can see some parents right now keep it in their back pocket like, oh, I'm going to use that one. But that's exactly what God is saying as a father to these people. They stubbornly follow their own heart. They do them. That's what they do. Webster's Dictionary defines mysticism as, quote, having direct intercourse with the divine spirit and acquired a knowledge of God and of spiritual things unattainable by the natural intellect and such as cannot be analyzed or explained. The problem with feelings, it often leans itself towards mystical assessing of reality and decisions to follow. A rejection of mysticism is not the same thing as rejecting feelings about God. There is a difference between emotions and mysticism. Every important fact will produce certain emotions in us that are appropriate to the fact. The idea here is this. Our bodies, physically and mentally, are to be brought under the authority of God in our decisions. Our mind, our will, our emotions are to be brought under complete authority of Christ. This is why we profess him to be our Savior and our Lord. What would Christ have us to do? When we think about our feelings and the emotions that come from them, we should know that the emotion does not equal the relationship, nor should the relationship be dependent upon the emotion. To illustrate this, Jesus in John 14, what does he say? He says what? If you love me, you'll feel it. When that song is played, that moment is quiet, the sun is shining, you'll just know it. It's actually not what he says. You're like, oh, I, really? Because I was confused by you just saying that. John 14, verse 13, or excuse me, verse 15 says, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. The temptation for many of us Christians today is to confuse the quote-unquote voice of the Holy Spirit with a mystical experience. We must be careful lest we be guilty of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 14 being tossed around by every wind and wave of doctrine. The third step to biblical decision-making is to understand God's perspective. We not only need to take personal responsibility, we not only need to identify the complications, we need to understand God's perspective. God's perspective is the correct way to view the world around us. Some of you have heard of, some of you have not, just the significance of pilots who are in flight and the significance of pilots coming to trust their dashboard in front of them that registers their altimeter, where they are, their speed and other variables in which they're factoring. Because it's not uncommon for a pilot to be in the middle of flight and to become disoriented based on where he sees the horizon to be or not, feeling like he's up or down. This can certainly be a challenge. And what happens is it creates a sensation of vertigo where they do not know right from wrong, up and down. When they're in this type of sensation, they teach them all the time in training, 
Look at the dials. Look at the dials. Look at the dials. They do not lie. No matter what you feel, that dial does not lie to you. At this point, we have to recognize the same thing is true for Christians. The dial that God has given us, the dashboard in front of us, is his word. The word that lays out for us. This connection that we need to understand. For often we can feel a sense of vertigo. That what feels wrong is right. And we can trust our feelings and maybe even attribute those feelings to being the voice of God. And say we need to trust God's instrument panel. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Loving him takes effort. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this as I read this to you. It teaches us that there's a correlation between our mind being renewed since it's being affected by sin and being able to know what the will of God is. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Saying in a different way, we want to know God by knowing his word, which leads us to loving God and be confident of his will. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus is speaking He talks about how we can become anxious. He says, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. We should seek the word to tell us that reminder. A reminder of what John Calvin said when he wrote, for his will is not to be sought anywhere else than in his word. Which leads us to the fourth step, principally for biblical decision making, commit to the process. Commit to the process. Now, when we talk about the will of God, if I may, let me explain to you the will of God kind of in thought of three Ds, if you will. There's God's will of decree, God's will of desire, and God's will of delegation. God's will of decree is what God sovereignly has determined as clearly understood from the word, as expected, or mysteriously provided and unexpected. God's will of decree, nothing can stay his hand, nothing can prevent his will. The word repeatedly teaches this. That's God's will of decree. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is God's will of decree. This is ultimately why we fall back into the reality that our loving Heavenly Father has got you. But that's to be different from God's will of desire. God's will of desire is how things ought to be. It's God showing us in his word how he wants us to live, the wisdom of life following God's word. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Friends, God's word is so clear in so many areas that informs us in all the other areas. 
God's will of desire. Third, God's will of delegation. This is God entrusting to us as creatures made in his image with responsibility and opportunity to exercise our dominion as wise stewards of creation. Why do I say this? Because this is where most people are the most nervous in decision making. Because they can't go to their Bibles and find, okay, uh, uh, online dating. Online, online. Nope, not under O, let's go to D, let's go to D, let's go to D. Or they're like, you know, children, children. Uh, blessing, okay, it's good to know. Oh, a rod of correction, that sounds difficult for them. Uh, I, don't got, I got questions about children. What about curfew? I don't see anything about curfew. What about curfew? And you're like, I don't know what to do. I know God's word says what, you know, he's getting like, oh, he's God's sovereign. He's like running the world. That's impressive. I don't know how he's doing it all, but he's pulling it off. And then God tells me things like, you know what? I should conduct myself honorably with integrity and I should trust him. And okay, I get that. But like, but I've got some decisions to make. Should I take this job or this job? Should I apply for a new job or should I be thankful that I have a job? Should I stay with my parents longer and save more money? Or should I move out and grow up and be an adult independent from my parents? Should I provide for them as a statement of responsibility? Or should I, be, should I marry now or should I wait till later? I just don't know. And all the anxiety begins to come. And the fear and indecisiveness. God's will of delegation is God entrusting to you, made in his image with the opportunity and responsibility to exercise dominion as wise stewards of his creation. Most of life's decisions are a demonstration of your freedom and prerogative to make a decision for yourself. The question is, what do you want to decide? And why do you want to decide it? People are often nervous about all that freedom. That's why they often will make this statement. God told me. Like, oh, okay, tell me more about that. Like he audibly spoke to you like I'm speaking to you right now? Because if so, I've always wanted to know what his voice sounded like. Is it like a deep baritone? Is it like a tenor? Does he talk fast or slow? Is it like, you know, old English, these and thous? I'm just kind of curious what that's like. Oh, no, I didn't mean that, Eric. Stop being a punk. Okay. So what do you mean? Well, I had this sense that what God wanted me to do was this. I'm like, okay, so that sense, how do you know to trace that chord of thought to like divine in its origin? I'm not saying it's not, I'm just saying, how do you know? Friends, you're always gonna be left with a question mark until you come back to the word of God and begin to realize how God intends his people to make decisions in a way that gives them freedom, but the opportunity to reflect his wisdom and ways in this world that shows he is of supreme worth and value. Possessions we own, friends we make, time being spent, vacations being planned for, people being pursued in a relationship, children being raised. We're not left with nothing. We're given so much from God's word that informs all those things. In the white space of scripture, God's word has specifically taught us what to do in that white space and considering how to do so. Now that leads me to now the practical. We've gone from the textual to the principle to now the practical. You're like, can you almost just tell me what to do? All right, you got it. Here we go. Number one, does God's word specifically address it? How to make a decision? Does God's word specifically address it? If so, conversation's over. 
It's over. Like, I, I got it. I'm done. I know what to do. Number two, think about it. What are you thinking about? Think about your motives related to that decision. You know why you might be interested in that conversation. Your motives related to the decision. Think about your role as a representative of God. Think about your role or your role as a relationship to other people. How will this decision you're going to make encourage others to make the same decision? Or would you be like, you know what? Don't do what I did. If we're all honest, we've all got a number of those decisions. Like, hey, I mean, like half of my parenting is me telling my kids, don't do what I did. We have to think about the implications of our decisions and its influence on other people's lives. Number three, get information to learn about the decisions, the options. Part of the understanding of wisdom is to acquire knowledge, acquire knowledge. Like there's actually information to learn. You know, practical things like what do things cost? How much time will be committed? What are you involved with? There's actually information to learn. You're not simply left with a gut feeling. What are the options? What are the pros and the cons? What would happen if you did make the decision, if you didn't make the decision, if you didn't make it now versus you made it later? Fourth, pray about it. As you can see there, what I say? No, I mean like seriously pray about it. Not like, you know, token prayer, so you can say you're praying about it, but like seriously pray about it. Ask God to redirect your desires. Ask God by his province to direct opportunities. Ask God to direct counsel to you, which leads to number five, seek counsel from wise and godly people. Here's the qualification, people, wise and godly people. I just want to say this. If you're in high school right now, some of you are in high school, you're teenagers, here's the worst people you can ask for relationship advice, other teenagers. I'm just, you know, rocket science here. Rocket science is like, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to pull ignorance together. You know what I would do? Like, oh, please do tell me. Please do tell. You actually want to pursue wise and godly people. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. I am often reminded that the reason why people don't seek counsel but make decisions before they seek counsel is because they don't want to be responsible for the counsel that might actually contradict what they actually really want to make the decision. I'm like, all right, that's fine. It's your decision. You got to live with it, not me. And I can't say I told you so because I never got a chance to tell you so. But God's word did. Number six, pray and consider how you respond if you do or don't get it. This is a great way to identify idolatry. If you'll sin to get something, or if you're going to sin when you don't get something, that's God basically saying, I got you. You love something more than me. You're looking to something other than me to find your peace, your contentment, your joy, your thankfulness, your gratitude in. How will you respond if you get it or if you don't get it? Number seven, as crazy as it sounds, just make the decision. Make it. You got to make the decision. I caution you from putting too much pressure on the subjective feeling of peace. I have a peace about it. Uh, sometimes you make hard decisions and it's like really hard to have peace. You know what's like a crazy decision to make in South Florida? Buy a house. Pretty much guaranteed you're never going to have peace about it. Until maybe you die. And then you're like, ah, I don't care anymore. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Like, I'm not going to lie. For those of you who have never had the opportunity, and you're like, I wish I could have that opportunity. I'm just telling you, it's, it is like the most anxiety-tempting decision you can make. 
That might be second to like deciding to propose to a woman. Or the woman deciding to say yes to the proposal. You're like, this is it. Do I do this? Or having kids. I mean, these are big decisions. And you're, you look to like the peace, like this sense of like ambient music just somehow plays in the background of life. Like you're not in yoga, but you feel like it's a yoga moment. And that somehow is supposed to assure you that you're good. No, that's often not always the case. This is why they call it faith. Faith to trust in the Lord, to lead you, to guide you, to teach you, even when you make bad decisions. You can learn from it. You can rest. You can trust the Lord. Here's what I want you to remember. For those of you who are Christians, remember your identity is in Christ, not in any single decision or even the sum of all your decisions. Here's the truth. You can't avoid foolishness but you can minimize it. And even when you are foolish, you can be reminded, God is not loving you because you're a fool or over your wise. He loves you because your faith is in Christ, your savior, who perfectly, rightly, in time and in tact made every right decision that ultimately led to salvation for sinners. So in the freedom that God gives us to worship him, and there is so much freedom to do so, we can relax in knowing that God sees and knows cares. It doesn't encourage you to be reckless. It encourages you to be responsible, but also rest. And God's care for you. Because as you desire to do his will, to please him as a follower of his, then you can trust him. He'll teach you even from your bad decisions, lessons you'll learn, things you can teach others in humility. But for others of you, the first decision to make is not where you're going to go to lunch today. The first decision you're to make is whether or not you're going to surrender your life to Christ and he's going to be the Lord of your life. That decision determines the direction of all other decisions as to their conclusion and the consequence that comes from them. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.